Lecture Notes, The Medieval Period, Augustine. Up until now, theism, which is the belief in a single personal god, hasn't played a big role in our discussion of philosophy. But when it comes to medieval philosophy, suddenly theism is going to take center stage. Although we'll give a little bit more attention to Christian philosophers in these notes, it's important to note that medieval philosophy was actually full of interfaith dialogue among Muslim philosophers, Jewish philosophers, and Christian philosophers. There's somewhat of a stereotype that medieval Europe was a dark and depressing place full of people dying of the plague and the church suppressing everything philosophically interesting. It is true that medieval Europe faced a lot of struggles, the infamous, infamous Black Plague chief among them. It's also true that during the Middle Ages, the Middle East was flourishing technologically and intellectually, not Europe. The Arab world was much more advanced than Europe at this time. Morocco had the world's first university, Baghdad had the House of Wisdom, Cordoba, where Maimonides grew up, we'll talk about Maimonides later, had streetlights, hospitals, libraries. In fact, a lot of modern math and medicine stems from the work of scholars of many religious backgrounds that were working in the Islamic world during the Middle Ages. Our words for algebra, algorithm, alcohol, alkaline, almanac, chemistry, cipher, elixir, and zero all come from the Islamic Middle Ages. However, whether we're talking about Jewish, Muslim, or Christian philosophy in the Middle Ages, it's important to resist the bias that this philosophy is less rigorous simply because the philosophers in question were religious. Your textbook even has a little bit of this bias, I think. Notice it says that the church may have placed shackles on philosophy and this environment produced an occasional beacon in the dim medieval light. Instead, we will try to resist this bias, and part of your task in this unit is to think philosophically about the relationship between faith and reason and faith and science. And this happens to be a favorite topic of medieval philosophers themselves. Okay, Augustine. Section A, Reconciling Platonism and Christianity. Augustine was not really a medieval philosopher proper. Historically speaking, he's more of a hinge figure between Hellenistic philosophy and medieval philosophy. You've probably at least heard of him, though. He's had a tremendous influence on Western thought and Christianity. Plato played a big part in Augustine's thinking, even though Augustine was a Christian. Remember, Christianity didn't exist in Plato's time, and Augustine lived about 800 years after Plato's death. So how did Plato influence him? In part, through a Roman philosopher named Plotinus, who lived 500 years after Plato. Plotinus started a new school of thought called Neoplatonism, which took Plato's ideas and expanded them. Remember again that the prefix neo means it's a new and updated and slightly changed version. So Neoplatonism is new Platonism, new Plato. Augustine studied Platonism and Neoplatonism in his youth and sort of melded some Platonic ideas with Christian thought. Augustine believed Platonism and Christianity were natural partners. He famously said that if Platonists could live in the time following the birth of Christ, they would all have become Christians. He thought Platonist ideas set the stage for, or naturally led into, Christianity. Augustine was born in northern Africa to successful parents in 354 CE. He spent much of his youth and young adulthood living a decadent and rather wild life, hanging out with friends, having affairs, basically raising hell. When he was in his early 30s, he converted to Christianity. 
One of his most famous books is Confessions, the first Western autobiography ever written. This book is a confession in a dual sense. In parts, it's a confession in the sense of confessing sins, i.e. Augustine is confessing to the sins of his youth. However, it's also a confession in the sense that it's stating Augustine's faith. That's maybe an older sense of the word confession that you might not be used to. It means stating one's religious beliefs. Augustine also wrote numerous other books about theology and philosophy. He died an old man at the age of 75 and was named a Catholic saint by his local bishop, and thus he's often referred to as Saint Augustine today. Numerous cities are named on his behalf, and he's highly regarded around the world. He is still a major figure today in both philosophy and theology. Section B, Augustine's view of the soul. Plato, remember, had a famously dualistic view of the world. He thought humans were a soul and body, but that the body was somewhat trapping or weighing down the soul and was making it difficult for us to gain knowledge of what's truly real, i.e. the eternal and immaterial realm of the forms. You can probably already see how this has points in common with Christianity. When Augustine and other Christian theologians and philosophers discovered these ideas in Plato, they took to them like a duck to water. Of course, Augustine didn't take every aspect of Plato word for word. He took some of Plato's ideas about the self and reality and added elements of Christianity to them. For example, where Plato saw a transcendent world of true forms, where everything exists in a perfect and unchangeable state, Augustine saw a transcendent God and perfect realm in heaven. Where Plato believed immortal souls were striving to achieve union with the eternal realm through intellectual enlightenment, Augustine saw immortal souls striving to achieve union with God. Consider some of the following passages from Augustine's spiritual autobiography, Confessions. But when I visited Simplicianus, priest of the Bishop Ambrose, I mentioned I had read some books of the Platonists which had been translated into Latin. He congratulated me that I had not fallen in with the writings of other philosophers full of fallacies and deceptions according to the elements of this world, whereas in all the Platonic books, God in his word kept slipping in. I'll pause for commentary before we move on. Notice what he's saying here. Augustine was consulting with a priest, asking for spiritual guidance, and he mentioned to the priest that he'd been reading some books written by Platonists. And the priest basically says, Wow, I'm so glad to hear that. There are all these sketchy, heretical philosophers out there who might lead you astray, but Plato and the Platonists, you can see glimmers of Christianity all throughout what they say. Or, in Augustine's words, God and his word kept slipping in. It's a delightful turn of phrase. I have not mentioned yet that Augustine studied rhetoric, the art of language, as a young man, and probably as a result of that, he was a really beautiful writer. Moving on to more excerpts. By the Platonic books, I was admonished to return into myself. With you as my guide, I entered into my innermost citadel. Sorry, another pause. When he says you, he means God. He's, he's speaking to God. I entered in with my soul's eye, such as it was, saw above that same eye of my soul, the immutable light higher than my mind. That light transcended my mind not in the way that oil floats on water, nor as heaven is above the earth. It was superior because it made me. When I first came to know you, you raised me up to make me see that what I saw is being, and that I who saw am not yet being. Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you.
and see you were within and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. In these passages, we see several notable things. First, the strong emphasis on a division in reality with a higher eternal spiritual realm on which everything else that exists depends and derives its being. This is a theme Augustine carries on from the work of Plotinus. Second, notice Augustine's use of the five senses in the second quote or passage I read. Plato famously believed that sense experience is not a reliable source of knowledge. True knowledge instead comes through reason and is of the eternal realm of the forms. But Augustine in this passage speaks of the physical senses as being transformed into spiritual senses or means through which we know God. Augustine, like Plato, believed the physical body was different from and inferior to the immortal soul that inhabited it. In Augustine's early work, he describes the body as a snare and a cage for the soul. He says the body is a slave to the soul's will and the body rebels against it. It all sounds very hostile. But in his more mature work, Augustine's thoughts on the relationship between the soul and the body became more refined. Instead of a slave, the body is the spouse of the soul. They are united, attached by natural appetite. What did not change in Augustine's thinking over time are the principles that the soul is separate from the body and the body is inferior to the soul. Upon death of the body, the soul is allowed to live in the transcendent realm of truth and beauty. The immortal soul finds fulfillment in union with the eternal transcendent realm. For Augustine, this is a return to God. I actually find early thought, uh, early Christian thought on the body really interesting. And I had a professor as an undergrad who somewhat hated Augustine because he argued that Augustine ruined Christianity by introducing too much platonic dualism into it. It's an interesting idea. And I do think that you can make a decent argument that if it weren't for Augustine, Christianity as a whole would not have developed into an often anti-body religious tradition. This may not be true or as common among Christians in 2022, but certainly historically, there's been a lot of dismissal or rejection of the body in Christian thought and practice. Section C, will and love. Another theme I want to mention regarding Augustine is this idea of the will. Your will is just your capacity to make decisions. Think will as in free will. The will is at the heart of Augustine's writing. He thinks that all that exists depends upon the creative will of God, but the human will is at the center of his writing about humanity. Remember Plato's tripartite soul? For Plato, reason can and should govern our spirit and appetite. Augustine, on the other hand, although he doesn't dismiss reason, thinks that will follows love above all, not reason. This is why we see in Augustine's book, Confessions, such a long and lengthy discussion of Augustine's pre-conversion state. Augustine goes on and on about wanting to convert, thinking he ought to convert, but not having the will to do it. To Plato, remember, this idea of being weak-willed, knowing that you ought to do something but not being able to do it, made no sense. Plato, 
or, or Socrates, I'm really running them together here, are famous for denying that weak-willed action is possible. But for Augustine, the will is motivated by love, and so our fallen human wills must be transformed by God and reoriented to love God in order for us to choose and will what is right and good. Section D, Augustine on Evil. As I write this, many people in my life have suffered tragedies within the last week. A family member was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. The home of some friends burned down. A woman in my community died from cancer at too young an age. In the course of our lives, when these hard things happen, it's really natural to ask why. Theists who believe in a personal God tend to ask this why question to God. If God is powerful and good, as theists believe, then why did God let the bad things happen? God could have intervened to prevent the cancer from growing. God could have intervened to prevent the house from burning down. This is what's known as the problem of evil. There is no perfect solution to the problem of evil. In fact, a general point of advice, you should be suspicious of anyone who claims that they can quickly and easily resolve this problem. But even if it cannot fully be solved, various philosophers and theologians have offered partial answers to the problem. Let's look at Augustine's. First, Augustine reasoned that God created the world. Therefore, all that exists must be good. God did not create anything evil. So everything that appears evil falls under one of three categories. One, it could be something that's unpleasant but leads to good in the long run, like a toddler getting vaccines that will keep them from illness later on. Many Christians have regarded suffering in this way as something that forms their character and makes them a better person. Two, it could be a privation or lack, which is something that doesn't have reality in its own right. This is perhaps the hardest of Augustine's views on evil to understand, but basically it's just saying that evil doesn't have reality in its own right. It is only ever a lack or an absence, sort of how like a shadow is just an absence of light. Finally, human evil or moral evil, which is the product of a human will that is corrupted and turned away from God. Some evil, Augustine thinks, is caused by corrupted human wills that choose the wrong thing. Augustine is probably most associated with the privation view of evil. And for more on Augustine's privation view of evil, see the following optional uh, video. It's a Wi-Fi video on the nature of good and evil. Um, oh, and we're, <laughs> we're going to wrap up. That was the end. So if you want to watch the video, go see the lecture notes.